I teach a metta vipassana, and I teach a, a, a strategy, a meditation-based strategy for emotional regulation, which is, I think, really the basis of, of um, a large part of shifting attachment into secure attachment. And then also, uh, I like to talk about attachment as mind states. Um, in metta, uh, if we I teach a metta jhana, so metta jhana is a highly concentrated state on the mind state of loving kindness. The advantage of learning this way of practicing is that you develop the capacity to, to generate and sustain mind states, which means you contract mind states and begin to be sensitive to recognizing them, and then you can recognize the, the, the condition of the mind, but then also begin to recognize more complex presentations of mind states like an attachment strategy. Um, the reason I think that this is so useful is because it really is a representation of uh, our conditioning. In some sense, we're observers of our own conditioning in that the, the, the automatic processes of the body-mind just roll, and they roll based on our conditioning. And if we're unable to watch what that is, uh, we, we tend to identify with it and think of it as the experience of uh, ourselves. Um, and actually, the, the automatic processes run whether the experience of self is present, whether you're conscious or not, um, whether you're paying attention to what's happening or not. Uh, in, in secure attachment, there are these dimensions of, of mentalizing or mind state tracking that are already in place, and if you don't have secure attachment, then what we're looking at, in, in some sense, deficits in your capacity to mentalize. So practicing metta in this way is really useful in opening up uh, the exploration of that. Um, in particular, this automatic versus controlled mentalizing, or I like to, I've often talked about it as automatic versus manual. Uh, in the beginning, either with metta practice or with vipassana practice, um, you're going to be learning a new skill so that you're going to be in this controlled mentalizing or manual mentalizing state in, in order to train the body-mind to do the technique. But once the body-mind takes up the technique, it becomes part of the automatic processing. So you can also watch that. Um, particularly when you use uh, meditation strategies as um, emotional regulation strategies, the, um, what you'll notice is that the, the body-mind tends toward the original conditioning and how you regulated it, but as you develop the skills, uh, the alternative skills, the body-mind uh, first will almost give you a choice of which one to use, but that if you default consistently to the new one, then the body-mind will just switch to the new uh, technique and you'll just notice that that's what it's doing rather than you having to effort to get it to do it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Last week when we did the metta practice, we did metta around uh, an easy person. So uh, um, an easy person is someone that when you think of them, the mind just naturally inclines toward kindness. So uh, another way to describe that is we all carry a working model of ourselves and we all carry a working model of other people 
and part of that working model is the mind state through which we view them. In relationships that are close, um, we tend to have a, a lot of different kinds of mind states that we view a person through depending on how uh, they're responding to us or how our dialogue with them is going. And we want to be able to do metta for everyone, but, but in the beginning it may be uh, um, more complex than it needs to. So if you focus on somebody who is um, maybe not as close to you, but the relationship is quite simple and you generally incline toward kindness when you think of them, it'll make it easier to track which mind state it is. Um, we want to be able to first identify what a mind state is and then which mind state it is. Then we want to be able to uh, cause the arising of a specific mind state when we want to. Then usually that happens when you notice that the, the reactivity to the present moment is an afflictive mind state. So you want to really develop agency in being able to control what mind state is present at any given moment. A, a lot of us uh, who, who don't have much agency with this feel that we're subject to whatever mind state arises and that actually isn't accurate. You, ha you can have great agency in, in um, changing or uh, addressing whatever your mind state is. Some of us may not even be aware that we have mind states and may we may not notice that we have one or another. Um, what's interesting about mind states is that their capacity to distort is uh, really uh, significant. If the mind is angry, it really totally distorts your perception. If it's sad, if it's fearful. Uh, the attachment mind states are also uh, useful to track because it's, it's representative of the experience of, say, the parasympathetic and uh, sympathetic nervous system and what those activations are like. In somebody who had a, a good enough childhood, the, there's an integration between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous, is sympathetic nervous system is constantly going off and, and uh, looking for uh, threat. And then the parasympathetic sympathetic system is evaluating whether the, the threat is real, if it is causing an action to take place, and if it isn't shutting down the sympathetic nervous system. But people who are declined toward a um, dismissing strategy tend not to have a conscious experience of the sympathetic nervous system and they have a hyperactivated parasympathetic nervous system. So they're always shutting down. And then people who have a preoccupied mind tend to have a hyperactivated sympathetic nervous system so they're always lighting up but they have a deactivated parasympathetic nervous system so they don't settle very well. And then if you're in the fearful attachment category, you, you have, they're disconnected and they just both go off independently of e each other without much linking. Um, so most people experience mind states inside the head. It's a physical sensation inside the head so that's the place to look. Um, if you've done metta practice before, have you done metta before, have you? Yes. Uh, everyone else I know. Um, <coughs> uh, 
uh, if you've done metta before, then you may have done what I think of as wet metta, where the object of the meditation is to generate a positive feeling state in the body. So that that meditation, you're focused in the body and you're focused in the emotional ex ex system trying to incline the body toward a particular emotional experience. Here we're not trying to do that. We're, we're really just focusing on the mind state. Uh, so th and then, uh, so in the beginning, it's just recognizing what a mind state is and recognizing kindness as a mind state. And then, in the middle part of the practice, having agency to cause the arising and sustain the mind state. And then, as the practice deepens, viewing how holding a mind state of kindness distorts in a positive way the experience of self and world. The reason that that's such a useful practice is you can then watch the distortion of any mind state because you have the skill set to do it. And that becomes really important when we begin to talk about recognizing the attachment mind states and how they create distortion. So today's practice we're going to work first in establishing the, the mind state of metta or loving-kindness um, for the easy person and then we're going to uh, move to practicing for ourselves. In the West in particular um, uh, it's often in the beginning of metta practice difficult to hold met the metta mind state for yourself. We tend to be super critical in our culture in a way that uh, isn't ordinary in Asian culture. So they don't have a lot of focus on this part. I mean, I was on the retreat uh, in Myanmar in February, and the Sayadaw said, I'm hearing a lot of the yogis, it was an all-Western retreat, talking about self-hatred. I'm really puzzled about what self-hatred is. I've never had the experience of it. <laughs> and he said, also, I've noticed that the yogis here won't say that they hate someone. They just say that they're difficult. Um, and we all laughed. And he said, um, difficult means you're angry at them. Why not just say you hate them? <laughs> uh, you know, anger, the extreme form of anger is hatred. So if you're angry, you're, they're in the category of hated person, which I thought was very funny. We're not even free to do that, right? Because uh, of our conditioning. So I will give a guidance and we'll sit for maybe 30 minutes. How did that go? Yeah. Right. Feel better. And um, I definitely, I can 
give you a long answer. We're, we're talking about emotional regulation strategies and the development of emotional regulation strategies. Uh, you want to be brilliant at regulating your own emotions, but you also want to understand that uh, it's easy to get knocked so far off balance emotionally that you can't bring yourself back into balance and then you need somebody else to help you and that that's actually the smart way to go. Um, if you don't do that, then you attempt to just do an auto-regulation strategy where you regulate yourself in exclusion of other people. And it's, it's much harder to do that and not nearly uh, as beneficial. Um, auto-regulation, there's a lot of different auto-regulation strategies of which meditation or metta could become one. That would be an internally focused practice. But there's also the internet, there's also the phone, there's also movies, TV, there's masturbation, there's eating, just lots and lots of different ways to do it. Um, and that comes from an early experience in childhood where uh, your care was so inconsistent that you didn't rely on anybody else to care for you. So that's the earliest form of regulation, auto-regulation. All of us begin there. We're born, um, we, don't, we don't have the brain capacity to even sense that somebody's coming to take care of us. It takes months for that to happen. When it does happen, we begin to focus on the person who comes to take care of us, to regulate us. This becomes an external regulation. But if you don't have good enough care, you never move into the external regulation because nobody comes consistently enough to get you to do it and you stay in this auto-regulation place. Then happens when you become, if the person is good enough and you rely on them to, to regulate you, then what you begin to do is learn how they regulate you and you take those strategies in, you interject them. Um, and you learn the dance of co-regulation. That's what happens first. You move from external regulating into this. It's a, if you watch, if you have the chance to watch 
uh, a mother or a father with their infant, you know, really small, under a year old, the dyadic relationship between them is very rapid and constantly adjusting to each other and constantly communicating before language, just in the in facial expressions and and cooing and usually the parent explaining in language what they think the experience of the the infant is and the infant is taking all of this in of course and and learning that that's the system of what it is that's happening and also how to deal with it in a really be beneficial position for the child the child has an effect the child uh, the child's expression is mirrored back to the child so they understand what what's happening and then also it has an effect on the caregiver that they can recognize as being related to their expression in the first place. That's what begins to form this secure bond between infant and parent. But if something disrupts that, then that doesn't happen. But if it does happen, you begin to understand how the regulation process works and then you become good at regulating yourself, which is good for exploration. If you can't regulate yourself, you can't explore separately from someone else. But if you can't explore separately from someone else, you don't get to have your own agenda. You get the shared agenda or you get the other person's agenda. You want to be able to explore, recognize that you're off balance, try to right yourself, but if you can't have put in the time and effort to develop a social network that will catch you, write you and push you back out into your exploration. That would be ideal. And all you have to do to get that is do that for them, right? So when they get knocked off balance, you take them in, you regulate them, and then you push them out so that they can return to their exploration. Is that making sense? So with metta, you want to use metta or any of the meditation practices as a self-mastery approach knowing that it's in conjunction with your relationships to other people. Um, but, you know, it could take you three or four days to auto-regulate a, a situation that you could resolve in ten minutes with someone else. It's, it's, it's not a good plan, auto-regulation. <laughs> um, and then if you're in relationship with somebody who tends to get hyper-activated, it's useful to know how to regulate them, which is really just hold them. I like to um, prescribe the 20-second hug. Um, and I just want to, and you were right to say that not everybody's a good hugger. Chest-to-chest, um, chest, so you can feel pressure on both sides of the chest. Belly-to-belly, belly, so you can feel pressure on your belly. That's a good hug. And then reaching around, one hand on the base of the other person's spine so that you can feel the tension in the body relax. And then one of you holding the wrist up, timing <laughs> it. <laughs> so that you go the whole minimum of 20 seconds. Because if you don't go 20 seconds, oxytocin doesn't release. And oxytocin is the thing that really shuts everything down and brings it back into calmness but if you don't hold on and it's an awkwardly long period of time in our culture but only in our culture other cultures um, 
think it's bizarre that we don't, we're not physical, right? Um, uh, which I think is very interesting. Uh, you know, we, I like to call it the wishbone hug, which is where you're sort of, the minimum amount of actual body-to-body -body contact is there and your genitals are as far away from the other person's <laughs> general as you can get them and still be in contact. <laughs> Chest to chest, belly to belly, so that the electrical systems of the body can engage with each other and begin to activate the oxytocin system. And then it takes a while, 20 seconds minimum. So if you could go 30, that would be better. Or if that's too uncomfortable, could you just lean into each other so you're arms are touching and stay there for a couple of minutes. There's lots of ways to do it that doesn't get creepy. <laughs> I was uh, in downtown LA and uh, these, these two men uh, were walking down the street holding hands, two sort of regular old American guys. And it was very uh, pleasing to see that. In the whole business of downtown LA, uh, nobody batting an eye anymore. I mean, it was very pleasant. Just chatting away, mile a minute, walking down the street. So you can do it. Um, do you ever just, you're walking with somebody you know and just hook their arm or something like that? Um, I have a, f a friend and my favorite thing about him is wherever we go, he just puts his arm around me, right? I'm always in the role of dad uh, in my current in, uh, activities, and so it's very pleasant to have somebody just ignore that part and, and uh, express that sort of basic affection. But it, if you go a minute or two with that, you begin to feel really good because the oxytocin is being released. It's one of three primary reward systems that we have, and we don't most of us live in a state of complete deprivation from it because we don't allow the the, the contact regularly enough. So. Um, the the uh, I, I've uh, seen some studies that show that to be really in balance and and to be uh, the happiest, you need to spend a, a minimum of two hours a day in somebody else's gaze. How often do you do that? Other than work. <laughs> Other than work. Other than, yeah. So. Um, I just as an aside, I also either read or heard that opiates create the biochemical release closest to oxytocin, or closest oh. to the experience of being suckled and, and just held really tight. So, to me, that implies that the opioid addiction has a lot to do with the fact that, in general, people are just really super deprived of that, and it's an attempt to self-regulate in some kind of way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I was uh, slightly tardily, but writing the newsletter, and I'm talking about loneliness in the newsletter, and if you Google loneliness, it, it's they're claiming that it's becoming a, a, a public health issue. Um, 
because it causes so much stress to be disengaged from other people. Um, interesting thing. Good enough answer? Thanks. I have a whole wrap I can just drop into if there are no other thoughts. I just have one little. Um, I'm uh, used to practicing meta uh, sensations in my body, from my chest in particular. Uh, and so it was interesting to focus on my head and kind of stay out of the, the bodily sensations in that way. Um, and I found it uh, really difficult to get into that usually very there's like almost like a rapturous feeling that I get with, mm -hmm. with that meta normally. Um, so, uh, so that was that was odd. I felt like I was doing it wrong, maybe. But then I realized that like the friendliness was there. The sun was also very strong, so I was getting sleepy. But like that, like friendliness was there. And so, um, I don't know. It's kind of interesting to just watch. Like, what's good enough? Like, this is there. It is. It didn't have to be all that. Well, uh, it's an interesting conversation about this particular thing. The, the far enemy of metta is anger, and the near enemy is sentimentality. Um, sometimes you generate that, that rapturous feeling in the body by generating a story in the mind, and that takes you out of the, the mindfulness of the present moment into the, the narrative. And then you're actually practicing sentimentality rather than practicing metta. The reason that I like this approach is because it pushes you into the, the present moment really hard and, and so makes that space bigger. Um, but with jhana, um, jhana practices, the intensity of the bliss when you get there is much stronger than anything that you could generate. So it. it it, it is worth doing the practice to get to that point. Jhana is five aspects. You place your attention and sustain it. That's the first part. So the object of meditation is the mind state. Once you, you're able to track what the mind state is, experience is and you're able to place your attention on it, then you've placed your attention, then you sustain your attention, and in the beginning the mind is going to be jumping and you're just going to bring it back, bring it back, bring it back, the same way that you would with any concentration practice. And then what you notice is uh, PT, which is the Pali word, which means rapture. So PT is this energy. So what you notice is that the mind state itself becomes much more energetic and then becomes much easier to track. And then the bliss hits. Uh, and, it's, and it can be really intense the bliss. It can be subtle, but it can also be quite intense. And then the mind settles and you don't have to effort to keep your attention there. Um, the, so that settling will bring you into the first jhana. Um, in the first jhana, you're, you're still off, often replacing your attention, but then it'll settle again and it'll just be the piti, the bliss, the or the piti, the sukha, and the Ekagata, or the, the the rapture, the bliss, and the one-pointedness. Um, but then eventually, the the the, the uh, rapture, the energy of the the PT is too much, and so you just settle into this place of one-pointed bliss, uh, with the mind inclined toward kindness, 
And that, that's the, the ideal place to get to in the practice. Uh, on retreat, you can see, uh, these, see it hit people because their whole demeanor changes as soon as it does. No, I think that what happens is you hold the mind state long enough and then it fills the body. Uh-huh. And remember that, m- that metta mind is cool. It's always cool. Um, uh, a lot of times uh, heat will come in of craving or, uh, um, or aversion. The, the um, dosa is in particular what they talk about. Dosa is the Pali word for the anger that arises from failed craving. So you crave something and you don't get it or you lose it and it produces anger, which is what commonly happens. Um, moha is a kind of spacey, spaciness where you can't really be in the experience of the present moment. Uh, loba is that uh, wanting, that craving. All of those things they call heat, that's what we mean by heat. So metta mind is the, the absence of those, in another way to look at it. The experience that I mostly uh, think matches it in terms of the English, uh, English language is curiosity. Um, just a really open curiosity. Um, we would have to look at it from the point of view of the sleepiness of tiredness or the sleepiness of the hindrance of sloth and torpor. Um, what, uh, so often when we settle down and close our eyes, uh, um, the body takes that as a cue to go to sleep, and so you begin to fall asleep. And so the way to test that is to energize the posture so put more energy into the core of the body. Uh, you could do that um, by straightening up. You could do it by holding your hands up. This puts more tension into the core. And then you'll notice if you're getting uh, sleepy because your hands will drop and you just pick them up. You can open your eyes, you can stand, you can walk. All of those things would be putting more energy in uh, related to tiredness and not having trained the body-mind out of going to sleep when you close your eyes and relax. And that's different from the hindrance of sloth and torpor where actually the exploration of the meditation is putting you into contact with uh, experiences, internal experiences that the mind doesn't want to deal with and so it just puts you to sleep so you don't deal with them. That one's harder. 
uh, still the same more energy but you'll notice that if you get into areas that the body mind doesn't want to deal with consciously you just immediately fall asleep so you don't you don't deal with them so then you have to be you have to when you wake up come back into the practice and and really bring the the metta toward yourself and just allowing yourself to know those things one of the main ways that we deal with uh, traumatic experiences by not knowing that they happened um, and there can be lots of things like that that cause that response but I would begin with the tiredness investigation because uh, and also uh, what's useful is to pick a posture that's your meditation posture and and really place the body carefully so that the, the, the body mind is trained that when you're in this posture you're not supposed to fall asleep you're supposed to meditate but if you use a lot of different postures it, it, it's harder to train the mind to do that so that very careful settling in process is really about placing your body in the same posture that you're going to use uh, over and over again I also use this hand position because if you start to fall asleep the thumbs drop and you get a physical sensation that signals that you're you're falling asleep so you can straighten up um, so we were talking last time about uh, attachment conditioning and how it shows up so that you can recognize it. And I like to talk about it in a couple of ways. I think of one of it as a sort of kind of a, a top-down way where uh, the, the, um, there's a list of skill sets that you have. The first is that you have a coherent narrative about your life and uh, you understand what your early conditioning was like, how that affected the way that you formed relationships and how the way that you formed relationships took you in the direction that you went in. And that, you can s and that that's coherent, that is to say that it makes sense. I will give you an example of incoherency. Um, I was working in a rehab and someone said that They'd had a wonderful childhood, that everything that they needed had been provided for them, uh, and that they couldn't understand how they turned out the way that they did. And, um, uh, and, and I asked them, because I had read their, their case history, how was it that somebody who had a, a perfect childhood would be ODing on heroin at 13? And they couldn't explain how somebody who had had a wonderful childhood would be in that position and that's what I would call an incoherency. They couldn't really understand what had happened to them. Um, another kind of incoherency uh, is a, the kind of thinking that it wasn't that bad or whatever it was. But you really do want to uh, begin to understand what it is that a child needs uh, to grow up well and what was there and what wasn't there and then to try also to understand the intentions of your caregivers uh, so that you can put make sense out of it 
With, this is a, a way of removing blame and understanding what happened. And then understanding that because you had the conditioning that you had and you had the view of yourself and others that you had led you in the, in the direction of choosing what you chose, part of that is what you chose and part of that is the, the options that you had to choose from. And a lot of that you didn't, you didn't choose, right? You grew up in the family system you grew up in and they, they provided you in childhood and adolescence with a lot of the choices that you had. Then you picked from the array that was present to you, not from what wasn't uh, present for you. Um, so that's the coherent narrative. And it, it's a conscious process or a, a controlled mentalizing process. The second aspect of a secure attachment is uh, mentalizing or thinking about thinking. Um, and we, I, I've been using the uh, Fonagy uh, system to describe that because it, it expands it uh, into dials. I like to have dials. Um, I grew up in the 60s and my next door neighbor had a fire engine red GTO convertible, 1967. And on the dashboard, above the dash, they had all of these little round dials that indicated different things going on in the engine. And I, that's always the image I have of meditating, um, all of the dials. And you're keeping track of the dials. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, there are four, four main dials. Uh, one is the energy level. Is it too much? Is it too little? Is it right in the middle? Um, do you have uh, good enough sensory clarity of the meditation object? Are you mindful of the present moment? And are you concentrated well enough? Those are the four dials for basic Vipassana meditation. And then you have the objects of meditation that you can explore, arising and passing, and mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside, and the mindfulness of inside and outside. That's from the, you all, you know, all know the Satipatthana, that's the discourse that the Buddha gave on how to meditate. It's the basis of Buddhist uh, meditation practice. Um, if we were to add four more dials for mentalizing, then they would be the automatic processes versus the controlled or manual processes. Um, another way to put that is, uh, it, um, let's say the body-mind processes 11 million bits of information a second. That's what one group of neuroscientists has claimed. And then if we were to parse that in terms of what's happening and how much is conscious and how much isn't, there's very little of that 11 million bits that's a conscious experience. It's almost all automatic. Uh, 10 million bits uh, are, are dedicated to processing visual thinking and then 100,000 bits or so into processing uh, the, the, each of the rest of the senses. Um, we don't know that. We don't know that 11 million bits. All of that's just happening. What is the, the bit width of the conscious mind? 
versus the unconscious mind. 16 bits. 1, 6. So we have 11 million bits of activity and the bandwidth for consciously monitoring that 11 million is 16 bits per second. So we really need to begin to track in our, our, our puny 16 bits our impression of what the 11 million bits are doing, right? That's the basis of mentalizing, tracking that. And it really is just tracking because it's happening whether we track it or not. And it's happening based on our conditioning. And what we can know about our conditioning con consciously is by watching it unfold and then direct redirecting it if necessary. I like to say that consciousness is the veto power. That the whole body-mind, uh, it senses the experience, it, it figures out what the sensing experience means based on previous sensing. It then forms a response and an action to take and then it sends over to consciousness at the last second, we're about to do this. Yes or no? And if you think that it's a bad idea, you can stop yourself from doing it. But if you're not present, there's nobody there to stop it and you just do it. This is the automatic process. And most of us, most of the time, are simply operating from this automatic place. It's only when something goes wrong that this controlled or manual uh, set comes online. You're engaged in a conversation with somebody, you're not thinking about anything, and then suddenly they have a reaction that you didn't anticipate that they would have from your interaction and you become quite sensitive, quite slow and deliberate in the processing around how they're interpreting that. Making, uh, am I describing something that you know? Um, so this is this integration between automatic processing and manual or controlled processing. It's one aspect of mentalizing. So is it possible where it's a, a, a possible goal to expand the bandwidth you have for conscious thoughts, or is it just a matter of choosing different things to be conscious of? Um, I think that we the, the bandwidth stays the same, but we may have filters that restrict what we allow in, and we want to begin to remove the filters so that we allow everything in. One of the th one of the things that one of the the problems in mentalizing is that you restrict what you allow yourself to know consciously, and so it's just happening automatically and un unconsciously. And you might even argue with somebody that that's what you're doing because you haven't allowed the information in when it's perfectly obvious to everyone else except you that that's what you're doing, right? Has that ever happened? <laughs> it happens. Uh, what do you mean they can see that the information got in, but you're saying, no, I'm not. You don't understand why they think, you, why they're talking to you about behaving in a certain way. Uh, because you think that that's not what's happening. That's not what you're doing. Oh, and they can see it clearly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'll only do this line. I won't do the other four. Because <laughs> I don't have a problem. <laughs> or whatever it is. I, yeah, when I don't know 
I'm yelling when I'm yelling, and I'm oh. yelling so loud. But I don't deny then when it points well, that's out quite to a me. But I'm like, Why are you yelling? I'm not yelling. <laughs> 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 Why are you angry? I'm not angry. <laughs> right? You're angry. <laughs> All of those. Uh, the second aspect of mentalizing is, is awareness of self and awareness of others. And this is really uh, right in the Satipatthana Sutta, mindfulness of, of uh, self, mindfulness of the world. The world in Buddhism is always other people. And then the interaction between the two. So in mentalizing self and others, do you let yourself in on yourself? And when you look at somebody else, can you understand them, both on a micro level in a sense, can you connect empathetically to the experience of another person and feel them and understand what's happening with them? Um, uh, or can you not read them? That would be a mentalizing of the other. Can you understand that they behave that way because of their conditioning? Uh, or can you not understand why they would do that? Or What we often want is for somebody to be different than they are or to change behavior that they have and that would be a failure of mentalizing that their conditioning is driving the behavior and it's automatic and they mostly don't have volition over it so you can't blame them for or demand that they make an agreement with you that they won't do that anymore because they won't be able to keep it and they, most of the time they make it because they're afraid that you'll abandon them if they don't and then they can't keep the agreement and then they're in, in worse trouble so that, but that, on your part, is a failure to, to mentalize them, right? You might make an agreement with something that you couldn't do, and that would be a failure to, to mentalize yourself. Is that making sense? So to see yourself clearly, to see your conditioning clearly, to understand clearly what happened to you, that's also affecting, uh, talking about coherent narrative, but this is also your, uh, uh, say, do you understand what the bandwidth of your uh, emotional capacity is? And do you put yourself in situations where that's reasonably ob observed? Or do you put yourself in situations where the, the stress just disables you because you don't uh, mentalize yourself well enough to know? Is that making sense? Um, it's getting a little cooler. Let me know if you're getting wet from the misters and we can turn them off. Uh, the next one is uh, internal versus external. Um, can you track your internal experience and monitor how you express it externally? Can you track the other person's internal experience and track their external experience? If we were to tie this to empathy, the first level of empathy is just this automatic response to the witnessing of someone else's pain. That's pretty much an automatic. The second level is where you're trained to read the facial expressions and body languages of someone else and to interpret them as an expression of the internal experience of the other person. And the third level of empathy is where you actually have a felt sense of the other person, emotional sensations in your body, which are the empathetic experience, then can you track all of those? Uh, depending on your conditioning, you'll be able to do it or you won't be able to do it, and you won't, you will or you won't in certain patterns. 
Um, for instance, if you have a preoccupied uh, um, mind, you'll be able to track the empathetic experience of the other. You'll become very externally focused on the other, but you won't be able to track your own experience very well. If you're dismissingly oriented, uh, you won't be able to track your internal experience very well, uh, but you'll be able to track your external experience. Then you won't be able to track the internal experience of other people, and sometimes you'll be able to track the external experience of others. And you'll rel and uh, often what happens with dismissing people is they uh, interpret how they're doing based on the reaction that they get from other people. So it's a kind of external, external experience. Um, if they don't get the right response from the other person, it's very, very fear-orienting to them. But they, they don't have awareness of their internal experience, so they don't know that it's frightening to them. But it changes their ex external expression in response to that. Uh, and then the last one is uh, the cognitive versus the affective experience. Can you tell the difference between a thought and a feeling? Um, and can you track them both? This is, w this is my thinking response, this is my emotional response. My emotional response is affecting my thinking response. Um, can you interpret cognitively what the other person is saying to you? And can you also track their emotional response to the interaction that you're having? And again, the uh, secure people can do that, do all of these things pretty well. And people who have insecure attachment or uh, disorganized attachment have particular patterns of deficits in this, which come from the early dyadic relationship with your caregiver when you would have learned how to do all of this. They would have taught you how to mentalize. And if uh, you didn't get instruction from them, or you got instruction in the way that they mentalize, including the, the defects or the deficits in their mentalizing, you would have learned the deficits of mentalizing rather than learning a, a, a better way of mentalizing. One of the great things about uh, the Vipassana, uh, meta-Vipassana approach to this is that the very active Vipassana meditation is a mentalizing practice. You're discerning the individual sensing experiences and you're uh, watching the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral aspect of them. You're watching the, the craving, aversion, uh, unconsciousness, equanimity aspect of them. And then you're examining them through the lenses of the Dharma. All of these things are teaching you to mentalize. If you add those four dials in there and begin to pay attention to them, particularly when you learn the, the attachment mind states and what your, I mean, one of the, it's like a shortcut is how I think about it. If you know what your attachment strategy is uh, and the patterns of deficits in mentalizing are associated with those patterns, uh, each, uh, each capacities for mentalizing and the pattern of them can be associated with an attachment strategy, then you know where to look. Then you also know what skills that you need to begin to develop in order to correct the mentalizing aspect. Uh, the third one uh, on the, the list is to see the value of attachment relationships. 
Um, if you didn't, uh, if you don't have secure attachment, then the energy that you put into relationships, uh, uh, you're always going to be questioning whether the payout is good enough. It turns out that people who uh, have insecure attachment put a lot less energy into relationships than people who have secure attachment. Um, and the reason for that is that it doesn't make sense to you to put all that energy into a relationship because you don't get the benefit from it. Whereas secure people know what the benefit is and it seems totally reasonable to them that they would have to put that much energy in it to have that benefit. So, uh, and part of this is they understand the value of attachment. And so uh, people with insecure relationships, because the outcome of their early uh, conditioning um, may not have been so beneficial, it doesn't make sense to them. And then we get into this second layer, which is the actual relationship history that you had. So you're set up for this with your attachment strategy, because the way that you go into relationships based on your attachment strategy affects how the dynamics of the relationship go. But it also has to do with uh, the opportunities that your family uh, uh, made available to you and also your luck, which is an interesting thing. Or we might say karma, if we were at a Buddhist meditation class. <laughs> um, when you walked onto the playground, your attachment strategy would have uh, helped you create a hierarchy of social values and pegged you where you fell in the hierarchy of social uh, uh, status and may have oriented how you went about trying to form relationships. If you and understand that there's no intrinsic social value, you create it in each moment based on how you think you're doing in relationship to the group. But if you went in there and you created this uh, social value system and the people that you wanted to be in relationship you put as untouchable to you because their social status was so high, you may have gone into the relationships that you thought were available to you with not sufficient interest to really make the relationships work. Um, Uh, and you would have excluded yourself and put yourself into a place of, of deprivation because you didn't try to get to go for what you wanted because your conditioning prevented you from seeing the world as a place where you could do that. Is that making sense? So it's like settling for low-hanging fruit. Like <laughs> right. <laughs> so identity foreclosure tends to happen in like uh, minority groups. They tend to not think that they can, so they give up. Right. And uh, the, the um, social hierarchy is in human social groups, because we are herd animals, and this is something we're constantly doing, it's a function that happens all of the time. If you're capable of mentalizing when you walk into a room, can you track how you've organized the social hierarchy? But I, c I can tell you, we were on. Re we do family-friendly retreats. So if you if you have a child and you want to bring them, you can. You have to have two caregivers. Uh, but uh, last summer, um, uh, a four-year-old came, and on the third day of the retreat, she gave me an acorn, and she gave the retreat manager an acorn. 
and she didn't give anyone else an acorn, which meant she was able to calculate the social values of the retreat and respond by attempting to ingratiate herself <laughs> to the people who had social standing. But what I admired about it is she just did it, right? The four-year-old walked up and gave me an acorn. Um, But I, what I want you to know is we all do it every time we walk into a room. We scan, create the hierarchy, and then peg ourselves where we belong in the hierarchy. Um, yeah, where, where you think you belong. And, th and that can greatly distort uh, what you do, right? Uh, we have a, a, f uh, a phrase around here called, I love you, keep going, which was actually uh, part of this thing. I had a student, really on paper, he was a, a great catch. I mean, you know, uh, educated, uh, very successful uh, in career, very successful financially. Um, and he, he kept losing interest in the relationships that he was in. So, highly preoccupied, I said to him, so describe this to me, this going out and meeting someone. And he said that he would go out and he would meet somebody and he would get their phone number and then he would text them to set up a date. And then uh, if they didn't text back, he would text them again. and text them again. And so I said, at the end of the day, how many texts would you think that you send? And he said, oh, I don't know, 30? <laughs> so I said, you can never do that again. <laughs> you can text them, but you have to wait until they text you back. And if they don't text you back and you become completely angry, uh, anxious, which is what he would do, you can text everyone else in the world except them. Uh, and so that was the first stumbling block. But then he, he would say, I still, I go on three or four dates and then I lose interest. And I said, well, uh, tell me about the process of who you pick, because that's what it sounds like. And he said, well, I'll see something that I'm, I'm somebody I'm really interested in and then I'll, I'll start across the floor to go introduce myself, but my, my self-critical talk will activate and and, and by the time I'm halfway across the, the distance, I'll give up and I'll go to the bar and I'll just stand there and then I'll meet somebody at the bar that I'm not really interested in, but then the self-talk doesn't start and I'm able to go through the process of asking them for their phone number. And so we, we, we came up with the phrase, I love you, keep going, uh, in order to get him all the way across the floor to introduce himself to somebody he was actually interested in. But if you can't mentalize that that's, which he couldn't do, right? He couldn't break these pieces down. Once he could break the pieces down and see them, he was skillful and he could move past them. Um, hmm? So this started, <coughs> this is after what, the adult attachment interview. Did you talk about his preoccupation? I didn't, but it, it was, uh, I didn't at all. Uh, um, I talked about the hyperactivation of his mind and the, 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 the perseverating, worrying thoughts. He was a big catastrophizer. Yeah, it stemmed from his youth. youth yeah. 
he had uh, uh, medical trauma. So he had seven bone surgeries when he was an infant and uh, during a time when they didn't uh, uh, adequately uh, medicate children for pain. Uh, and so that he had this ambivalence with his mother because she took him to the hospital and then he would wake up from surgery and be in terrible pain for months. And he couldn't understand why she would do that. He understands now as an adult, uh, but at the time he couldn't understand why she would do that. Um, and it created, a, and he didn't know when the, uh, that they were, there were seven operations and they were all planned, but they didn't tell him that they were planned. And so he, they would just happen would be like they'd get in the car and drive to the hospital and uh, so he had a gr uh, an ambivalence and a hyperactivity around monitoring her because he didn't know when she was going to do that. Um, so uh, anyway you can see what I mean by how bringing in the, the uh, faculties of mentalizing will, will help you track all of this. Uh, what you're, and this is again this automatic versus manual. That what is what is your body mind doing, based on your conditioning, and can you track it and veto it when you need to, and and direct yourself in a different way so that the outcomes you have are better. So part of this is learning what a secure relationship is like learning what the, the dynamics of a secure relationship are so that you can, when you notice uh, you're automatically moving in the direction of insecure, an insecure response, you can stop yourself and push yourself manually into a secure response so that you reap the outcome of that. If you respond securely, even if you don't do it automatically, the outcome is a more secure relationship and you can move your, your current relationships into a secure dynamic pretty easily by monitoring, by developing these mentalizing skills. Um, is that making sense? So then it's important to begin to understand what, it, what is uh, the structure of a secure relationship and uh, to begin to imagine the possibility for yourself. One of the things that uh, happens um, is that we have a deficit in our capacity to, to imagine uh, secure outcomes because we've never really had the experience before. We're able to imagine the outcomes uh, of our insecure strategies because we've, we've done them all of our lives. So something happens in the present moment, we sense it, we notice whether the sensing experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and then the process of perception happens where the pattern of the present moment is compared to the database of previously sensed experiences, then if there's a close enough match, they're associated. And if you don't have good clarity between this is the present moment and this is the, the, the previous experiences that are like this, they conflate and you lose mindfulness of the present moment and you're in your, your memory, not in the present moment, and you're in the limits that are in your memory. This, I did this and it turned out like that. I did this, it turned out like that. 
you don't think, oh, I could do something completely different and see what the outcome would be. Uh, and then you, if you take uh, uh, an action that's based on a previous uh, um, uh, event, uh, because you're expecting that outcome, you are in some way confining yourself to the uh, repetition of, uh, of your conditioning. What really is so interesting about a, a view or talking about view in relationship to ta attachment, and the Buddha talked about it, um, mind states will create this view. So in the metta practice we were talking about the 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 deep practice is to establish the mind state of kindness and then track how it distorts the world and how it distorts perception of yourself. Um, and then once you get that mechanism or that c capability, you can apply it to say your attachment response. Can you recognize when you're in an attachment response? Can you recognize when you're out of the present moment and into the to the mind state associated with the, that earlier conditioning? And can you recognize when your, your imagination is, is not working to uh, address the potentiality of the present moment? Is that making sense? Um, and you can work to, to develop the capacity of your imagination to come up with uh, a better solution. So the first part is this working with the attachment thing, but the second part uh, is uh, reimagining how uh, your intimate relationship should be, so that you really move into this place of being able to imagine yourself in a secure relationship with someone else and what that experience is like, so that when you're in an, an, an encounter with somebody, if that's not what's going on, a red flag is going off and telling you in the moment that this is not a good option for you. If you don't have that installed there and you're being moved toward not a good option for yourself, there are no red flags going off, right? This is just how it is for you. This is just how it's always been for you. This is how it's going to be for you. That's what's happening. And your imagination really, uh, without this, without this uh, uh, reconditioning, gets very confining. So part of that is also this. But recognizing the mind state and seeing how it is, being able to control the mind state, uh, in the sense of which one is there and which one is not, and recognizing how the, the which mind state affects the perception of uh, the present self and world. Um, within the, the limits of being a human being, um, you, if you uh, developed a preoccupied attachment strategy, then you have a brain that's inclined toward hyperactivation. Even if you develop a secure uh, functioning strategy, which you can do, you still have the physical brain that's inclined toward hyperactivation. You just have a different relationship to it. If you had developed a dismissing capa capacity, 
you still have a brain that has that capacity, even if you move yourself to a secure functioning. You just have a different set of tools to use to deal with it, and you can recognize when it's happening and know what to do to address it. So for instance, you were talking about how you, when you were held, it's, it's settled. That Even if you have secure functioning, that's probably not going to be so different. You're still going to need to be held in order to settle the, the brain. That's the most economical. But you'll be able to be in a relationship with people who would be happy to do, for the, do that for you and know that that's something that uh, you need as uh, to be taken care of. In secure relationships, we take care of the other person the way that they need to be taken care of. So we just know oh, that's something that you need and we can recognize when you need it, maybe even before you can, and just provide it with, without even having to be asked to do it because uh, the job of a secure relationship is actually to take care of the other person. That's what, that's what you're, you do for the other person. You take care of them. And then they, in a secure relationship, reciprocate and take care of you. And you just learn how to be good, a good caretaker for the other person. And you just do it because that's what the responsibility for somebody in a secure relationship is. But if you haven't been in a secure relationship before, th that isn't the conditions of an insecure relationship. That doesn't happen in an insecure relationship. Uh, insecure relationships are really organized about each person extracting the care that they need from the other person. It's a kind of uh, secure relationships are a two-person psychology system, and insecure relationships are two individual psychology systems operating in, in proximity. <laughs> Is that making sense? Um, so it's the the vipassana, the vipassana is really good at the mentalizing stuff. It's really good at the emotional regulation stuff, and then using some of the Tibetan practices for the visualization work to to be reparative of the the, um, the imagination is we think a great combination. Um, in some sense, uh, the conditioning that leads to preoccupation puts the child in a lose-lose yeah. situation. Um, and so the mind just sort of fritzes out because it, it doesn't really believe that there's a, the possibility of winning. And so uh, if it's always if I'm always going to have to lose, I'm not going to cooperate with you making me lose. That's kind of how it is. Um, 
And uh, so this is again back to seeing the value of attachment. Uh, the, 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 the old sadness is probably the thing that's arising and then it's overwhelming and you've associated anger with regulating it and so the mind is just generating anger to mask the experience of the deep sadness. Uh, what I really say, uh, and I, I do mean this, that it is a terrible sadness uh, that we touch into, and, and, and you were talking about that earlier. Often the reason that we don't want to meditate is because it puts us in contact with the terrible sadness. Um, if you can come to a place where you can be in the full intensity of the terrible sadness and stay present for it, then all of those defensive structures that you've developed to keep you away from the sadness, you don't need anymore and they fall away on their own. You don't have to do anything about them. So, mm? well, I was just going to say, you see that in children of neglect. So what it is, is the importance of meta when you're doing your present time vipassana practice is always checking yourself that that neglect and anger sense of control, you're, you don't need it right now. Right. It's, uh, yeah, you have your bandwidth of tolerance. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, if the sadness, the terrible sadness exceeds that window, then you have the event of the experience of the terrible sadness. And then the mind is associated with how to regulate it. And it just turns on in the moment. Hey, uh, Les, on top of those two things is a button. Would you turn off the misters? Nope. On top of the white thing. What? Yeah. That's it. Thanks. I'm getting wet. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, <coughs> uh, what do I call it? The terrible sadness and the uh, terrible dread. The terrible dread is the abandonment terror, and the terrible sadness is uh, the d distortion in longing. In some sense, what we need to do is convert uh, the experience of the terrible sadness back into longing. Um, what happens in, in childhoods where the care isn't good enough is that the longing is uh, disappointed and it results in a, in a terrible sadness. Um, and then with, with kids who are uh, neglected, as you were talking about, uh, the terrible sadness becomes so overwhelming that they just defend themselves against it by suppressing awareness of all emotion. That's the strategy. So they don't feel anything. If you suppress awareness of your own emotions, you also suppress awareness of empathy and so they become unempathetic because they don't have any conscious experience of the other so it's a a, a, a a mentalizing problem where they lose awareness of the other person's internal experience that would be the third level of empathy 
But what often happens to kids who grow up and be dismissive is that they were so neglected that their caregiver didn't even teach them to recognize facial expressions and body language. And so they're, they're blind to the second level of empathy too. So what you'll notice with people like that is they're asking you to tell them in words what you're thinking and feeling because they can't read you at all. And you'll notice that with them, they're very good at responding as long as you're uh, feeding them uh, in words what's going on. And because they can't check the validity of what you say, you can say anything to them and they'll accept that that's what's actually happening. So you could be sitting there stewing in extreme anger and tell them that you're fine and they'll go about their business as if you're totally fine because they haven't been able to they haven't been able to read that that's not what your facial expression is and they don't feel you empathetically. They only know in words what you're telling them. I'm fine. And they go, okay, great. And <laughs> off they go. <laughs> Preoccupied people, um, because the care is inconsistent and there's often a, a role reversal, the, the longing to them means that they're going to be obligated to provide care and so that it, it has a different flavor to it than what the other. The fearful avoidant, um, fearful avoidant uh, people, uh, longing to them is a treachery because it means that they long for the person who's likely to hurt them. So it ha it ha that has a particular flavor to it as well. I'm longing for the person who's likely going to respond by hurting me. What do you do with that? So what that tends to do is the, the longing arises and the, the fight or flight mechanism arises and cancels it out. So it creates the appearance of passivity on the outside. Um, imagine that, the, the condition where you're longing for connection and intimacy, uh, but you're afraid that the person will hurt you if you let them know. That's the condition of the fearful mind. I equate it to like, I tell these kids all the time, it's like the first time you reveal that you love somebody. Like the, the first boyfriend, girlfriend situation where it's like you're so inauthentic until you're accepted and you're like... Right. Yeah. But always not being brave enough. You know, because one time you said it and that person or 14,000 times you said it and they <laughs> didn't show up. <laughs> or they showed up differently each time. Yeah. What happens to the, what in, consist, in secure attachment, the child learns what they need to do to get the care that they want. And then they do it and they get the care that they want. And it becomes very secure in that sense, very reliable. But in insecure attachment, uh, uh, the dismissing child, there's nothing that they can do to get the care that they want. Uh, so they stop asking. In a preoccupied mind, each time you ask for the care, you get a different response. And so you can't develop a sense of confidence that if I do this, I'll get that outcome. And in the, in the fearful mind, you ask for care and sometimes the care is harmful. So then what do you do? You're always in a bind of 
deciding whether it's worth asking for the care or just going without. That's the, the debate in the, the mind of a fearful person. Do I really need this? Do I really want to put myself in harm's way for a chance of getting it? Or can I just go without? So you'll notice that all of the others do much better than fearful people because fearful people are always trying to go without in order to get by. Because it's easier. Well, in, in some ways, it's easier not to face the possibility of rejection. It's easier to say, I don't Right. But in, the, in fearful terms, it's the possibility of being killed. It's at that level, not of not getting what you want, of being killed. Is it worth asking for the cookie? Because I could lose my life, right? That's, I, you know, uh, um, we were, my mother was, uh, was good at that conundrum. Uh, we went to the, my mother said, we're going to have a day, we're going to go out, we're going to have fun, we're going to go to the park, then we're going to go to the movies, then we're going to go eat. Um, <coughs> and so, we did all of that, and then on the way home, uh, we did the. F in my family, the kids would get together and see who the sacrificial lamb was going to be. <laughs> and, and on this particular occasion, I was the sacrificial lamb, and so I said to my mom, uh, "Can we stop on the way home and get a milkshake?" And she said, "You think." that's all a $20 bill means to me? Your milkshake? And then she didn't speak to us for two days. <clears throat> so that would be the kind of thing, a complete annihilation and withdrawal. And it didn't seem like it was such a big ask. <laughs> so, All right, I'm going to do my Donna pitch. So I'm um, very happy to do this class. I'm really excited to be able to do this, this class, uh, particularly uh, oriented around this discussion around uh, uh, the, the path to classical enlightenment for householders with this uh, sort of um, languaging around uh, exploring attachment conditioning, uh, because a lot of us need to, to do the attachment conditioning stuff first in order to get into the... Uh, in, into the pursuit of the other parts of practice. Um, and so uh, it, it, it's also important to have uh, some aspect which is just available to people on, on a, a dana basis. Dana is the Pali word for generosity. Um, so generosity is something we all practice. We practice it by, uh, by uh, giving something and then people practice it by giving something in return. So. Uh, for this class, the suggested don is twenty dollars. But again, it's it's based on what your conditioning is. If I uh, sorry, not your your resources <laughs> and conditioning. Uh -huh. <laughs> that was automatic without <laughs> manual. But then suddenly manual kicked in, right? <laughs> um, so. Uh, if you're more resourced and twenty dollars doesn't feel generous, give it a level that does. If twenty dollars feels good, do that. If it's too much, give it the level that's uh, commiserate with your resources. But please consider giving something each time you come, because you are actually practicing generosity for yourself. Um, cash in the bowl, and I can take a card if you'd rather. 
Also, there's a flyer there for a, a retreat coming up, uh, the summer retreat. Um, to consider doing retreat practice, it really uh, is an important aspect of, of developing your skill at meditation. Uh, I was, um, Dave Smith was here for a couple of days and uh, he was talking about uh, having a book, uh, having read the new Goldman book, I think it's called Altered uh, something, anyway. Traits. Altered Traits. Traits. Uh, and it's the study of, uh, of different types of practices for householders and what they found was that uh, longer retreats, seven to ten days, uh, twice a year, really moves your practice much faster than even having a daily practice does. So the retreat aspect is something to consider. Um, and you, you've all figured out our system because the space is so small, we're limiting the, the class to 15 people, so you have to RSVP. Thanks.